certain sense, I was doomed. Really, I was. I was raised by a man who was mad about horse racing and by a woman whose parents and whose brother owned and trained racehorses. My father was a small-time hobby gambler. I had an uncle had some decent horses, no real champions, but one or two that did come close. I had several friends who were as mad about horses as I was, maybe worse. So I learned early in life to gamble. Well, no, wait. I think the truth is I never actually learned to gamble. Uh, I was self-taught and I had a bad teacher. I was like my dad, a small time better, a hobby gambler. But when you're a teenager and you spend a day working at a gas station and then the next weekend you, you spend everything you earned at the racetrack and you come home with nothing, that's not so great. Now, horses, of course, are magnificent animals. And then at the racetrack, there's the color and the pageantry. The courses themselves can be beautiful if that's what you like. And then there's the tradition of it all. It's easy to get sucked in. Now, there were various ways to gamble on a horse. You could bet on the horse to win. If you gambled on the horse to win and it won, the payout would be a little bigger. That would give you a 1 in 12 or 1 in 15 chance of winning, depending on how many horses they were racing. You got one shot. Or you could bet that the horse would finish in the top three. That's a place bet. That would improve your odds, but you'd win less money. The payout is smaller. Betting on the horse to finish in the first three really means you're not sure. You're playing it safe. Or you could bet on a horse each way. That means you might bet on the horse to win and to finish in the top three each way. You think, maybe it'll win, but I'm not so sure, so I'll cover myself. So if your horse didn't win, you at least had a chance of getting your money back if it finished second or third. You get something. You could wager any amount of money that you cared to wager, but if you had money on a horse each way, you were sort of hedging your bets. Clearly, you didn't have the courage of your convictions. You weren't confident it was going to win, so you're hedging. You were in, but not all in. You were having it both ways. It seems to me that one of the great challenges facing the church today is the preponderance of people that appear to be having a dollar each way when it comes to faith in God. I'm not endeavoring to judge. I'm basing my observation on what I see. Also, on what I read. The divine sentence is that down here in earth's last days, we are a people that feels as though we are rich and increased with goods. We believe we have need of nothing. Not entirely aware of the reality of our truly dire spiritual condition. When Jesus speaks and says that he's going to have to spew certain ones out of his mouth, Jesus, the one who opened the eyes of the blind, who interrupted funerals to raise the dead, who blessed wedding goers by providing refreshments to gladden their festivities and graciously fed hungry picnickers, people so engrossed in listening to him, so attracted to him that in their thousands they did not stop to consider they'd left their homes and failed to take food with them. The Jesus who fed them, the Jesus who loved and healed is the one warning the church that they will be emitted if they do not repent. Now, Jesus was an affable character. He was serious. Yes, he could be solemn, no doubt. But he was a man of bonhomie, of happiness, of joy. So if gentle Jesus, meek and mild, says that in the closing moments of this earth's history, his people are lacking and self-deceived, that ought to get our attention. It has to mean that we're not any better than the church in his day. Women waiting for a wedding feast without oil in their lamps, falling asleep, you have no doubt marveled, Peter, James, and John, how 
could they fall asleep and not watch with Jesus? All he asked them to do was watch and pray, and yet they slumbered. We cannot be very different. Here's what we know. Jesus is coming back soon. We know that. We see that. Everything we see in the world today is very obviously setting the scene for the second coming of Jesus. You know that. Society is so, so polarized. Truth is fallen in the streets. I don't know what the news media is like in Canada, but I suspect it's like most places. It appears that the news media stopped reporting the news some years ago and began instead promoting political agendas on either side of the political spectrum. What your grandparents thought about morality is as relevant as how uh, they listened to music or communicated with each other. COVID-19 is a dry run for what's going to happen in Earth's last days. We used to wonder how in the world you could affect or control or regulate the behavior of people. And now we know that in a time of crisis, it really is possible to restrict movement, to stop the free flow of people and business. No one need wonder now. The future has arrived. It tells us Jesus is coming back soon. I remember as a kid believing my parents were coming home soon. So we got the house straightened up. We hid the evidence. I don't want to give away any secrets here, but I think you might know what I mean. When we believed mom and dad were soon to appear, we acted like we believed it. Friends, we are not going to sleepwalk into the kingdom of heaven. And so six words spoken by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount seem stunningly applicable to us today in light of what is found in Revelation 3, in light of the letter to the church of Laodicea, a people being judged. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about giving as it relates to hypocrisy or sincerity. He talks about prayer. He gives us the Lord's Prayer, the great model prayer that we should never forget. He talks about laying up treasure in heaven. And then he utters those six words. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. That has to be relevant to us. We are the ones to whom Jesus said that we are lukewarm. It's like Goldilocks porridge. We are not hot. We are not cold. We are somewhere in the middle. And Jesus wants us to take a stand. No man can serve two masters. Now, this is a general term. It's not a reference to gender. He is saying no one, no person, none can serve two masters. You'll notice Jesus doesn't say no one will not or shall not or should not serve two masters. He says that you can not serve two masters. It is impossible in trying to live your faith both ways, sort of in the church, sort of in the world, sort of committed to God, sort of committed to your own self-interest. It's simply an impossibility to simultaneously serve two masters. You know, the month January is named for the Roman god Janus, who, if you ever see that god depicted, Janus is depicted as having two faces. He was the god of dooryards and gates. What an honor. 
and the God of beginnings and endings. The story is told that Janus could use his two faces to his advantage. The goddess Cardia was known for leading her admirers to a cave and then running away. When Janus accompanied her to the cave, he saw with the face in the back of his head that she was turning to leave, and he caught hold of her before she could escape. His two faces were an advantage. But a two-faced Christian is not at an advantage. A two-faced Christian isn't a Christian at all. He or she is a pretender, a struggler. Now, maybe that means the person is still growing. If that's the case, that's okay with me. But if a person is simply a two-faced Christian, one thing at church, another thing at home, one thing in public, another thing in private, then that double life is going to catch up with you sooner rather than later. We get shocked with some regularity, don't we? Oh, I never imagined he was capable of such a thing. He's an elder. I would never have believed that she would do that. She's our head deaconess. Who would have thought that that could happen to someone like that? But human nature is a funny thing. We read the accounts, or at least we should, of what the early Christian church was like. People were absolutely committed to the mission of the church. They were absolutely committed to preparing themselves to be ready for eternity. Now, come down to more recent times. A Baptist preacher named William Miller believed Jesus was coming back to the world. And he convinced others that what he thought was true. Jesus would return to the world sometime in 1843, Miller said. Then they reconfigured and said 1844. I don't need to tell you how that turned out. By the way, what denomination was William Miller? Yes, he was a Baptist. That's right. I think the world should know that he is a Baptist. Lord knows Seventh-day Adventists have made more than their fair share of mistakes down through the ages, but the great disappointment was not an Adventist issue. That was a Baptist, well, not a Seventh-day Adventist issue. That was a Baptist issue. I just believe in credit where credit's due, that's all. But I can tell you that in Miller's day, The people who really believed Jesus was returning, in some cases, left their crops in the ground without harvesting them. They closed their businesses. They poured themselves into preparing to meet Jesus. They were not having a dollar each way. It's an age-old challenge. But friend, we don't have time to play. We are living in the end of time. We want to be ready to meet Jesus when he returns. So look with me in Jeremiah chapter 2, and we'll look at the very bipolar experience that Israel had over the many years. Are we turning in our Bibles? I think we are. We are going to Jeremiah and chapter 2. Verse 5 says, Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they're gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and have become vain? Verse 11, Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Read through Judges, and you see Israel was entrenched in an almost Sisyphean saga. Follow God, backslide, suffer, return to God, turn from God, national greatness, national ruin. They defeat the Philistines, but they don't drive out all their enemies. 
Joshua 2, Joshua dies. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Trouble came. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. It came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. That's in Judges 2, verse 19. And then in Judges chapter 3, they served Chushan Rishathaim of Mesopotamia for eight years. A pagan god. They cried out to God, and Caleb's nephew Othniel was raised up by God to deliver them. Forty years of peace. Othniel dies, and they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And they served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Ehud delivers Israel from Moab, and they have 80 years of rest. But then Jabin, king of Canaan, subdues Israel for 20 years. They cry to God. They are delivered again in the time of Deborah. Then they turn again, and the Midianites conquer Israel, which is when Gideon comes along. 40 more years of peace, and on, and on. But then, now the Philistines rule Israel for 40 years. But then Jephthah, then Samson. God's people just could never decide where they wanted to be. By the time Jesus came into the world, they had decided, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. The first example he used was money. You cannot serve God and mammon, which means wealth. Now, Jesus is not saying you cannot have it all. He's saying you can't serve both. Money cannot be your master. If you are to have it, great, but you're not to serve it. The money you give is there to serve you. And what that really means is to serve God. God gives us our goods, but they're not to be our gods. But something's going wrong, my brother, my sister. The country, wherever you live, is deeply in debt. You can't tell me about a single country that's just doing fine. You know where I live, the nation I live in, just south of the border? One trillion dollars in credit card debt alone. Have mercy. What's it like in Canada? Not a whole lot different, surely. People are in debt up to here. You know it's no difference in the church. So many congregations don't have money for outreach and evangelism. And you know why? Because we're not prioritizing as we should. When money is your goal, when money is your aim, when money is your passion, it's time to recalibrate, to plead with God to get your priorities right. Money can own you. Your possessions can run your life. If God blesses you with more money than you need, thank Him for it. Honor Him with it. If God blesses you with as much as you need and no more, thank Him for that. That's great. If God blesses you with less than you need, the first thing you want to do is figure out what your needs really are. You might be kidding yourself. If you're pursuing a life with Jesus, but your love, your aim, your objective is wealth, then you're having a dollar each way. You haven't decided yet who your master really is. When we come to Jesus, we are called to die to the old life. Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, 
but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself for me. You know, we'll go back to Jeremiah. In chapter 19, it says this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, the which whosoever hears, his ears shall tingle. They have forsaken me and, and have estranged this place, and they've burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they've, they or their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah. And they've filled this place with the blood of innocents. They built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal. These were God's own people, and they turned their back on God. Still God pleaded. Still God appealed, trying to woo them back, win them to his heart. There they were carrying on the temple services, naming the name of God. And what were they doing? Everything they shouldn't. They had the name of God, but they didn't have God. Like people who have the name of Jesus, but they don't have Jesus. We see the strangest theological contortions being carried out. Even in the church, people who want to believe the message. But then on the other hand, they will deny the creation account of the Bible. Or they've read where well, the Bible says that no one knows the day or the hour, but they still want to speculate. Often it's something like, oh, I'm not saying when Jesus is coming back. I'm just saying, I don't mean to set a date, but this prophecy is going to be fulfilled on such and such a date. No, man, you can't, you can't be doing that. I had some people ask me some time back, Pastor John, did you hear about the prediction? Yes, I, I had heard about it. I said, it's not going to happen. They just couldn't get past it. I said, no, no, you don't need to worry about it. It's not going to happen. They said, he's so sincere. I said, they all are. He said, oh, they said, he quotes the Bible. I said, they all do. He quotes the spirit of prophecy. My response was, does he really? If he did, he wouldn't be making false predictions. Oh, but he's such a good man. This is what I was told by a gaggle of individuals. I said, such a good man. Well, maybe we should challenge that assertion because good men don't make false predictions in opposition to the teachings of the church. Did you hear about the prophet in South America? I said, uh, no, but she's not a prophet. They said, do you know her name? I said, no. And they said, well, how do you know she's not a prophet? And I answered by saying, because every couple of years, there's another one. And they're always phony. And this one is too. What a shock I'm about to give you. I was right. Listen, my friend, God has given us a message for the end of time. The message God has given us in the Bible is true. It is right. It does not need embellishing. I want to encourage you, stay with the ship. You can't have it both ways. Stay with the ship and then abandon the ship on this point, this point, this point, and this point. That's just serving two masters, as it were. We get to the end of time and people have the opportunity to choose one of two masters, the seal of God or the mark of the beast. If we are not able to choose one master here, but we persist in serving two masters, if we're doing that now, there's no question but that we're going to be doing that then. We are headed for such a time. What does the Bible tell us? 
a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. The whole world is going to be arrayed against the truth of God's word. Those who want to be faithful to God will be faithful to God. A decision is needed. That's all that's needed. A decision to be fully yielded to Jesus Christ. Now, let me double back around here. Friends, Jesus is coming back soon. And and that should not fill you with dread or alarm. But it should alert you to the fact that we shouldn't be playing church down here on planet Earth. This is real. Why would we want to? If you could, if you could take a handful of gold or a handful of fool's gold, iron pyrite, you'd take the gold. It's just in your best interests to do so. Here's what I know. People will say, well, I want to choose Jesus, but I'm so weak in my heart. I'm talking to you because I know you're weak. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. And folks will say, well, I'm discouraged and I'm down and I'm disconsolate and I'm disappointed in myself because I'm so weak and I look into the future and I don't know how I can be ready. I want to live for Jesus, but the world just pulls me this way and it pulls me that way. All right, listen now. Let me tell you something about weak. Jesus said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. The apostle Paul wrote that. I'm crediting Jesus for the inspiration. My strength is made perfect in weakness. This is what God says. We want to be ready for the return of Jesus and we're double-minded. No, 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 that's destruction. We can't have that, nor do we need that. If we are double-minded, what do we do? We turn to God and we say, God, I am double-minded. If we're weak, we turn to God and we say, God, I'm weak. We turn to God and we say, if I was honest with your Lord, I got a problem with this and that and that and this, and it's almost impossible to discern between me and a lost person. What do you do? You go to God and you say, God, you must change me. If you're chasing money as though money is your God, money's okay. I don't mind if you're filthy rich. God wouldn't mind that at all. If he's blessed you, say thank you. But honor God with that. If you're chasing money like it's your God, just talk to God about it and say, Lord, maybe I'm caught up in some kind of a rat race here. Maybe I don't know the way out of here. But Lord, would you help me get this thing straight? Wait, bad theology. You don't ask God to help you to do it. You say, God, I can't fix my mess. I need you to live your life in me. Fill me with your spirit and do for me that which I cannot do myself. That's where God's people need to be. Forget about how good you are. Let God be good in you. Forget about your strength. God doesn't need your strength. He needs your weakness. He wants your sin. It's the people who are, well, they don't need a doctor. But Dr. Jesus came to save the sick. And if you can say, I'm sick, I'm weak, I'm prone to wander, I make mistakes, then you'll say, Lord Jesus, save me. Fill me with your presence. Friend, this is a real thing. Double-mindedness. It's not the seal of God and the mark of the beast. We don't want to be kind of ready for the return of Jesus. When Jesus comes back, we don't want to look up and say, this is our God. We have waited for him and oof, I'm not really sure. We look up and we say, he will save us because I've lived in his direction. I've yielded my heart. 
I've welcomed him into my life. Jesus is coming back. Come on now, let's talk about your congregation. If your church disappeared, would anyone in your neighborhood even know? Would anyone in your neighborhood even care other than the people who attend? How's mission looking in your church? And I don't want to tell you that mission has to be done in a single solitary way, because that's not true. But are we sharing Jesus? Or has church become a country club? Has church become a place where we go to be pleased and have our ears uh, massaged in a soothing fashion? We hear what we want. We see people we like. We eat the food we want to eat. But don't give Bible studies. I'm not conducting evangelistic series. Not doing outreach. Not inviting people to know Jesus. Come on, man. You can't have a, you can't have a dollar each way. Call yourself a Christian over here. But the church is dead. Deader in a dodo. You don't want that. It's time for God's people to get on their knees and say, Lord, wake up our church and give our church grace to reach our community. No longer should we slumber. No longer should we be asleep. No longer should we ignore the crying needs of the lost, the needy, the less fortunate, the the, the sick, the unemployed, the disenfranchised. We got to be Christ's hands and feet so that Jesus can say one day, Thanks for doing all you did for me. We say, what are you talking about? He will say, inasmuch as you have done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Oh, friend of God. You're wondering what to do with our nest egg. Oh, I got all this money. I'm about to die. I got five years left and I got a million bucks. What do I do with it? Well, I got three children. Let's just divide it up and give it to the kids. What in the world? If, if you live a good long life and die, your kids, by the time you die, are 50 or 60 years old. What do they need 150, 200, 300, 400,000 dollars for? Leave your son a lawnmower and a few thousand dollars for a holiday in Greece. And, and, and call somebody at a conference office and say, we're going to make a difference before we die or after we die. And we're going to invest what God has given us in the work of God. Never mind having a dollar each way. We are gods. We are committed. We don't want to look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world. We must be born again. Jesus will give you a new nature. He will recreate you after the image of God. You will not instantly become Enoch, but you are going to instantly be a saved Christian. And then you will grow and grow and you will grow and you will keep growing and keep on growing. And when Jesus comes back, He's going to look down from his perch up there, his position up there, and will say, my word, that individual looks like me. I see myself reflected in her, myself reflected in him. And I don't mind what your struggle is right now. God is greater than your struggle. Come on, friend. I would go to the racetrack and I say, I don't know who's going to win, but I like number two. So I'll have a dollar each way. Might win. Might come second or third. I'm covered. I wasn't all in. If I believed number two was going to win, I would take everything I got and put that money on a horse to win. You have a dollar each way when you don't have the courage of your convictions, when you want to play it safe. Come on, that's no place for us to be as believers. We want to be all in with Jesus today. What do you say, friend? All in with Jesus. We might not be at Camp Hope, but you can have hope right now. Hope. Why? Because you've given your heart to Jesus. You've asked him to take your heart. How do I give my heart to Jesus? Honestly, you don't. But what you do is you surrender it to him. And you say, Jesus, take my heart. I cannot give it. It is your property. Keep it pure 
for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of your love can flow through my soul. Lord, I cannot be half pie. I cannot be half baked. I've got to be all in. I'm in with Jesus. By the way, friend, I hope that you have not taken a single word that I have said as an endorsement for gambling. That was in a previous life, and such were some of you, as the apostle wrote. No, friend, I'm encouraging you today to be all in with Jesus, all in, 100% all in. Can you make that commitment now? Don't fight against the church. Don't get sideways on doctrinal detours. Don't do that. Take the Bible. Believe it. Accept Jesus as your Savior, not just in name only. Lord, change me now. Grow me now. Keep growing me. Keep growing me. When I stumble, I'm going to hang on to you. I will not let go by your grace. Hang on to me. Jesus is going to come back one day. We're on the edge of the greatest events in all of human history. The events of the last year or so have shown us how quickly things can change, how dramatically and rapidly things can change. My friend, I want to appeal to your heart right now. Would you give this heart of yours to Jesus? Can you do that? Can you yield now? Would you mind taking an honest look, an honest moral inventory? Are you in with Jesus? Are you in? Or are you sort of in? You've dipped your toe in the Jesus pond. No, no, no. Just dive right in there. In over your head. Jesus got one part of you, but not another part of you. Again, I'm not, I'm not calling you out for hypocrisy. Maybe you're growing. Are you growing and you want to grow further? We're going to appeal to Jesus. We're going to, appeal, we're going to pray. And as we pray, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Now, this is an easy one, because if you don't want to, you don't have to. No one will know, except whoever's with you right now. In fact, they won't know, because we're going to pray with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. But I'm appealing to you. I'm appealing to you today. And if you are an experienced Christian and you feel like there's no need for you to make a decision for Jesus, I'm here to tell you otherwise. Renew your commitment to Jesus. Would you do that? He loves you with an everlasting love. This Jesus died for you. Imagine if Jesus came to this earth and said, I'm not really committed. I'm kind of half in and half out on humanity. He gave everything, not knowing whether you'd respond. Now you can give everything, knowing that Jesus has responded to you already. Let me pray with you. We're going to pray. Our Father in heaven, take our hearts Make them yours. Lord Jesus, live your life in us. We believe that we have salvation through Jesus. But would you, would you cut the ties that bind us to the world? Would you melt away our selfishness in the love of Jesus? Our, our orneriness when we want to argue the point. Uh, give us a sense of unity. Our church is a sense of mission. Oh Lord, let us be about your business. Dear Father, send your spirit into our hearts so that you can be about your business, the business of changing us for all eternity. Friend, would you make a decision for Jesus right now? Could you do that? Lord, I want to be all in. That's, that's, that's the decision. I want to surrender my whole heart to you. I don't want to run anymore. I don't want to be half-baked anymore. Here's my whole heart. Take it, dear Lord, I pray. Would you raise your hand if that's your prayer? My hand is up. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. 
This isn't theater. This is not theater. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. Mine are just words. The Spirit of God will bring conviction, sense of urgency, a sense of this is now. The Spirit of God will reinforce in your mind that Jesus accepts you just like you are. And you can have the assurance of salvation and forgiveness of sins and know that you are one with God. Come on now, raise your hand, would you? Father, take our hands and our hearts. Don't ever let us go. And please, Lord, let Jesus come back soon so we can get out of here and go home. Until then, by your grace, we will live for you, sharing our hope with others. And we thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.